Well, good morning. How are you guys? Hey, um, before I introduce our speaker, I just want to give one invitation during this next service at 1130 in one of our classrooms upstairs. We're going to be having a workshop around this idea of how do you share your testimony? What does it look like to share your faith? Could you have an eight-minute testimony? And it's a workshop to help you do that. And you're going to see why we're doing that based on what we're talking about this particular weekend. I get to introduce to you guys someone who is like, like if I were to make a list of some of my top 10 heroes of the faith, Dr. Jerry Root would be like real close to the top. He's like one of my favorite people in the world. This week, we have this fantastic opportunity where we're hosting Dr. Jerry Root all week long. He's speaking here on the weekend. We're bringing him over to CSU. He's speaking to our Christian faculty network at CSU. Um, he's also going to be speaking, and I want to invite you to this, this coming Wednesday and Thursday night. Normally, we have Wednesday night services. You guys might know that, but this week, it's different. It's a two-part. Wednesday night and Thursday night at 6.45, Dr. Jerry Root, who is one of the world-leading scholars on C.S. Lewis, and he's going to be speaking to us about this idea of the enduring effect and impact that C.S. Lewis has had on the church, on the world, and so I would invite you to that this coming week, but let me, let me just introduce Dr. Jerry Root for you. Uh, Dr. Jerry Root is emeritus professor at Wheaton College. He's a visiting professor at Biola University as well as Moody Bible Institute, teaching C.S. Lewis courses at all three uh, of those schools, as well as courses on leadership and spiritual formation and philosophy and all these, all these sort, other sorts of topics. He's been teaching on Lewis for 43 years. He's lectured on Lewis in 81 different universities, probably about another 60 on universities and other topics in 19 different countries. He's got nine published books, seven of those are on Lewis. Uh, Jerry has served as a college pastor, as a senior pastor, and Jerry and his wife Claudia have four uh, adult married children, and this is Grandparents' Day, 15 grandchildren. So would you please give a warm Timberline welcome to Dr. Jerry Root. Fifteen grandchildren, that means I start saving up for Christmas every March. <laughs> yeah, I, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my grandkids, and I've loved being here this weekend. I've met such warm, kind people and inviting people. It's exciting to see what God's doing in your midst, and it'll be exciting to watch over the years what God does through you, and I'm hoping what he will do through you because of our time this morning. But if that's going to happen, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is one morning upon us. Quickly upon us, quickly it will pass. But I pray that things might transpire among us this morning that will still be lingering with us long after we've even remembered where we heard them. I know, Father, that I'm a pea brain, given all there is out there to know. And I know, Father, that what I have to offer these people are just crumbs. But I know, Father, that once your son took something like crumbs to a gathering of people, 5,000, and he took five loaves and two fish, and he blessed them and broke them and multiplied them and distributed those crumbs in such a way that everybody left satisfied. Would your Holy Spirit please do something like that among us this morning? 
would he take the crumbs that are offered and distribute them in such a way that each person here who has unique calls upon their heart, sadnesses, joys, conundrums and things they don't know how they're going to manage even tomorrow, I pray, Father, that each one would hear something that he or she would be able to say, that was spoken for me, and they would sense in that your affirmation of them and that your love directing your attention to their need this morning. For that to happen, we need something supernatural to occur, and we ask that that would transpire, and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. I want to call your attention this morning to one verse, Philemon 6. I'm going to use the NIV 1984. Um, I, I read through the Bible once or twice every year, and I like all the different translations, and, and I know translators of four of the different ones. But on this particular verse, I like the NIV 1984. I've translated it myself, and I think that's the best translation of this particular verse. I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. Let me say it again. I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. That phrase, full understanding, is one word in the original. Epigonosco. It's the most intimate word for knowledge in the New Testament. There's a level of intimacy with God you cannot experience if you're not engaged with God's heart in mission to the world. And I want to talk about this this morning. I think there are some who think sharing our faith in Christ with a non-believer is only for those with the gift of evangelism. I had a pastor once who told me, oh, Jerry, yeah, we like to encourage the people in our church with the gift of evangelism to be the ones to do that. I said, really? I'd like to come speak at your church so I could tell all the people who don't have the gift of giving, they don't have to give anymore. <laughs> I don't want to go to the church where only those with the gift of mercy are being kind and gentle to each other. That'd be a cold-hearted place. Each of us are to exercise in the areas of spiritual gifts, but some are given by the Holy Spirit a special aptitude. Nevertheless, each of us are supposed to serve to show mercy, to give, to encourage, and to share our faith. I do not have the gift of evangelism, but I have it as a high value, as each of us should. My gift is a gift of encouragement. If I meet a non-Christian, I can't encourage them better than pointing them to the God who loves them unconditionally and letting them know their sins can be forgiven. Um, I, I think if you have the gift of hospitality, you do your evangelism around a meal at your table. If you have the gift of service, get your toolbox, go down the street, help the guy who can't get his car started. And while you do, you share the gospel with them. If you have the gift of mercy, do your evangelism while visiting the sick and the infirm. If you have the gift of giving, do not let the message of Christ be separated from the gift. If you have the gift of leadership, be involved in the community and sense that those that are in that world are the ones to whom God has called you. Personally, not having the gift of evangelism, I've had to learn through my mistakes. I don't think anybody's naturally life-skilled. I don't think anybody's ever ready to get married. If you waited till you were, you'd miss out on all those joys. I don't think anybody's ever ready to have children. 
you waited till you were the whole human race within this generation. I don't think anybody's ready to do anything but function relatively awkwardly in any new endeavor. A toddler learning to walk falls down and gets bruised. A five-year-old taking the training wheel off the two-wheeler falls down and gets abrasions with those bruises. An adolescent picking up a skateboard trying to ollie or take on a half pipe finds out they've sprained an ankle or broken a wrist. You remember when you were in that one-room school experience in elementary school? And then you had to go to middle school and navigate six classrooms in a locker that never seemed to work, and you were just entering into adolescence, the most purgatorial period of human development? <laughs> you were awkward. Every new experience will leave you awkward. And if you're not awkward someplace in your life, you're just not growing. Don't let awkwardness keep you from sharing your faith. Now, athletes develop skill through practice. Good habits in any area of life come from fortitude and the commitment to hang in there till the skills emerge. In no other area of life do we bail if we make a mistake. Those of you that are married, did, 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 did you ever have a tiff in your relationship at all? Did you ever say when you did, well, this isn't worth doing, I'm going to bail? You have children, did you ever have any conflict with any of your children ever? Did you say, well, we're sending them off to the orphanage? <laughs> no. But why is it in evangelism, if it doesn't go so well, we'll say, I'm never doing that again. And in our awkwardness, on the threshold of potentially developing a skill at sharing our faith, we bail, rather than leaning into it and learning and growing. If you make a mistake, don't beat yourself up. You're, you're, you're human. But don't let it rest there. Go ask forgiveness of the person where you were maybe a little bit overly overbearing. Ask forgiveness. And when you do, say to them afterwards, you know what, I felt so bad. I, I, I didn't really do it well with you. And the reason why I'm asking forgiveness is because I wouldn't want anything that I did to keep you from seeing how deeply you are loved by Jesus. And then go and learn from your mistake. So you won't do that again, and you'll do it better next time. Dawson Trotman, the man who founded the Navigators, he preached a sermon once called Born to Reproduce. And he said a person is physiologically mature when they could reproduce physiologically. So too, a person is spiritually mature when they could reproduce spiritually. They could lead a person to Christ, disciple and mentor that person so that that person could go out and lead somebody else to Christ. In other words, they're moving into the realm of full understanding of all the good things we have in Christ Jesus. I met a man once named David Morkin. He was a grandfather of one of my students at Wheaton College. And he said, my grandfather used to travel the country preaching with Dawson Trotman. Would you like to have lunch with him? I said, in a heartbeat. We sat down for lunch, and I said to him, David Morkin was his name. I said, tell me Trotman stories. He said, there's one I love to tell. We were at a church, I remember he said the Pacific Northwest might have been Portland or Seattle, something like that, and he said the pastor of the church was a guy Trotman had led to Christ years before. It was a large church, and Trotman had discipled him. Pastor introduced Trotman that way. Trotman gets into the pulpit, and he said, I want to do something with you unrehearsed. It's true. I led your pastor to Christ. That's why I'm not afraid to do what I'm going to do right now. Calls the pastor back to his side and says to him, point me to somebody in this congregation you led to Christ and discipled. Imagine. 
He points to Matt in the back. Troutman says, Matt, stand up. Point me to somebody in this congregation you led to Christ and discipled. He points over to Steve. Steve, stand up. Point me to somebody in this congregation you led to Christ and discipled. He points over to Sylvia. Sylvia, stand up. Point me to somebody in this congregation you led to Christ and discipled. And Morkin said it went like that for seven generations. You know what I said when I heard that? Incredible. You know what the sad thing is? The normative has become the incredible. And there's no reason why the normative cannot become normative again. If we're willing to lean into our awkwardness and learn from our experience. I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ Jesus. The context for Paul writing that particular letter is that he was in a jail cell under house arrest in Rome. He had lived a pretty kinetic life. When he got to Thessalonica, they said, those who have turned the world upside down have come here. When he was at Ephesus for three years, two and a half years teaching in the school of Tyrannus, says the gospel went out through multiplication to all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. I could see Paul sitting in that jail cell. God, I'm one of your best resources. Are you sure you got these things figured out? You got me sitting in this cell all by myself here? But he didn't say that. He needed a little downtime. He had some letters he had to write to the church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, the church at Philippi. And oh yeah, there was this guy Onesimus. He was a slave of Philemon. He just happened to come by Paul's jail cell and Paul just happened to lead him to Christ and mentored him. It was just a coincidence. Don't let it build your faith at all. And he sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter telling Philemon, I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. When he was writing that letter, he was also writing the letter to the church at Philippi about his circumstances, and he said, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. How is that so? He's in a jail cell. At the end of that book, he says, the saints in Caesar's household greet you. How was it that he had his fingers on the pulse of the Roman Empire from a jail cell? Very limited. I, I, I think he saw that there was a Praetorian guard next to him. They were like the SEAL team of that era. And he shares Christ with that guy. You could see it back at the office. This guy says, I got the Paul assignment today. What's that? This guy says, I don't know. If you don't want it, I'll trade with you. I was there last week, and my life's starting to change. I, I, I had two, two times in my life I've had men come up to me and say, Jerry, you got to pray for me. I'm the only Christian at my work, and I am miserable. And I said, okay, put my hand on their shoulder. I said, Lord, look how miserable my brother is here. Please just take him home to heaven now. Get him off this earth and get him out of his misery. <laughs> Both times they knocked their hand off my shoulder and said, what are you doing? I said, well, you got two possibilities. You could be miserable or you could say, I am strategically placed. I'm the only Christian there. And I can tell you about times in my life where I've had to have my head on a swivel and say, Lord, what, what, what's going on here? I was poor. I grew up poor. I had to pay my own way through college. I got a job between my freshman and sophomore year in college with a construction company. And these guys were, they found out I was a Christian. I wasn't shacking up. I wasn't getting out drunk and all that stuff. And they couldn't understand what was wrong with me. And I told them I was a Christian. And man, they were on me like flies to stink. They started making fun of me. They started 
treating me in a bad way and so on. The thing is, some of the things they said were funny. It was at my expense, but still. I was called to that place. I was the only Christian there. And I just worked hard. I worked like a dog. And after two weeks, they saw I was working hard. I didn't get upset if they were making fun of me. And pretty soon, I was one of them. And I spent that whole summer working and talking one-on-one. And I was there. That was my mission field. At the end of the summer, I don't know if this was appropriate or not, I said to them, you guys, i got to go back to football uh, camp at the end of the summer here, and I'm going to be leaving on such and such a day. Is there any way I can talk to you all about Jesus together? They said, Jerry, you bring us a case of beer, you can talk to us about Jesus as long as you want. I didn't know if that was appropriate. I was too young to buy the beer, but I said, okay. I brought them the beer. They each put one in the cooler. That was it. And when the day was over, they popped their beer, stretched out on the grass, and said, you can talk to us about Jesus as long as you want to. It took time. You had to lean into the, the difficulties and stuff like that. And you're strategically placed. Where are you strategically placed? People in your world want to know. You know how I know people want to know? Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest. He said the problem isn't that people don't want to know. He says the problem is there aren't enough people who are willing to tell. And it shouldn't be difficult, I don't think, because how many of you are, are, are sports fans? This is, this is Fort Collins. Are you Denver, Denver Bronco fans? Do the people in your life know you're a Denver Bronco fan? Was it hard for you to tell them? <laughs> the people around you that don't like them, they, they can tell you, yeah, it's a mess. No, we talk about the things we love. How many of you, we had grandparents stand up. How many of you grandmothers have somewhere on you right now a picture of your grandchildren on your phone and your little grandmother book in your purse? Is it hard for you to talk to other people about your grand? We talk about the things we love. If we have troubles talking about Jesus, maybe we have to start there and go back and say, is our love waning? He says we'll grow if we share our faith. How will we grow? Let's look at a few ways, okay? Number one, <clears throat> I think we'll grow because people will ask us questions. I didn't become a Christian until I was in my first year of college. I had no doubt in my mind I was messed up. I had no doubt in my mind I was a sinner. I'd grown up in a church in the inner city of Los Angeles, and they were good people, and I liked being around them, but I never heard the gospel there. I'm sure the gospel was preached, but I never heard it. Because I was told if I went to a movie and Jesus came back, he wouldn't go in the theater to get me. I'd just go straight to hell. I wanted desperately to see Walt Disney's Shaggy Dog when I was a little boy, but didn't think it was worth risking my eternal destiny to go see. And when the neighbor lady, Mrs. Greenlee, came over and asked my mom if she could take my brothers and me with her boys, Mike and Fred, to see the shaggy dog, I'm looking at my mother with ambivalence. I want to go on one hand, scared stiff on the other. And when my mom said we could go, I thought, wow, does she really love me that she'd put my life in such eternal peril? <laughs> I was told in the Sunday school class, if I lived a holy and righteous life all my life, but I had one bad thought the last second of my life, I'd go straight to hell. And what I deduced as a little boy is if I could lose this based on what I do, I have to gain it based on what I do. And I never saw how Christ fit in that equation. I didn't know that he loved me unconditionally. I didn't know that he forgave me, forgave me of all my sins. And my freshman year in college, right at the beginning, my older brother who was a Christian took me 
to a campus crusade for Christ meeting. They go by crew now. And I heard the gospel for the first time, that God loved me unconditionally. And I responded to that message. And I have never stopped being grateful for what God did for me. And I wanted everybody to know. So I started talking to people about Jesus. And you know what happened? People started asking me questions. If God's good and all-powerful, why is there evil in the universe? I had never asked that question before I became a Christian. I've since written a book about it. It matters to me. People ask questions. What about other religions? How about people who have never heard? How do we know the Bible is really God's word? You go out and share your faith, you're going to grow because people are asking you questions and you're going to have to start digging a little bit and you start to discover, this is more interesting than I ever first imagined. If somebody asks you a question, it kind of ends the conversation. It doesn't have to end it for long. You go dig for answers and go back to that person. You say, you know, you asked that question the other day and I was doing some digging and I did it because you matter to me. And I wanted to find out if it meant that much to you, it means at least that much to me. And you share the gospel. Some of them, they'll just respond by asking you another question. Some of them will respond because that was a barrier they needed to get over and you helped them and they trusted Christ. If you share your faith, you'll grow because people ask you questions. By the way, you also learn not to be afraid of questions. If you have no doubts about your faith whatsoever or questions, you're delusional. You think you've achieved omniscience. Every time I read through the Bible, I see something I never saw before. I'm sure that's your experience too. Every time I read through the Bible, I see some conundrum. I can't quite figure it out. The next time or two reading through the Bible, I see how that works out. Somebody says to me, oh, I don't like the Bible. It's got all these contradictions and stuff. I say, you know what? I've actually sailed my ship a little further out on that sea than you've sailed yours. And I've seen over and over again how it works out. So when a new one comes, I'm not running from it. I'm leaning into it. I want to know the answers. You share your faith, you'll have opportunity to do that. Second, you share your faith, you're going to grow because people are going to scrutinize your life. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. My experience is if I'm not examining my life and confessing my sin and so on, other people feel really obliged to do it for me. <laughs> They'll point out your shortcomings. What do you do when that happens? I say to them, you know what? I, 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 my problem with what you're saying right now is I see that it's true. And I see there's some areas I need to work on. Thank you for pointing that out. And then you get on your knees and you say, Lord, go deeper with me in this. Transform my life so that my life will begin to reflect what your word says it should look like. And then go back to that person. I've led people to Christ that have pointed out shortcoming in my life. I've led them to Christ a couple, two, three years later because I see I took their word seriously and I grew and learned from it. Lastly, you're going to grow because um, you're going to start seeing Jesus show up in your world. You share your faith, and you're going to see some people respond to Christ. I don't think we take Jesus to anybody. He's already there. We just go to make explicit what he is doing implicitly in their life. I was coming back from a theology conference. It was in <clears throat> San Antonio, and, and I'd read a paper at it, and I got on the plane to fly back to Chicago. I'm sitting by the window, and a guy comes and sits next to me, and he says, rats, I got a middle seat. If 
I'd have really been on my game, I'd have given him my seat, you know, but I didn't do it that day. Then a guy comes and sits on the aisle. He says, Professor Root. I go, I'm sorry, you got the drop on me. I, I haven't met you before. He says, I was at the paper you read at the, at, the, at the theology conference. So the two of us start talking theology, and we got a guy in the middle seat. <laughs> and I turned to him, I say, what, what's your name? He said, Sean. I said, Sean, please, please, we were both at a theology conference. Don't mind us talking over you. Feel free to be a part of this conversation. A couple minutes later, I turned to Sean, and I said, Sean, are you a person of faith? He says, I am, I am. I said, tell me about that. He said, I went and studied with a shaman in Peru one time. What does that do to you? Do you say, uh-oh, watch out for that guy? Or do you say, maybe there's some spiritual hunger there. And where God may be wooing, maybe I can speak explicitly. And I said to Sean, tell me about it, Sean. He said, I saw I could study with a shaman in Peru. I saved my money, saved my vacation time. I went down there for three weeks. I said, how did it go for you, Sean? He said, it was the worst money I ever spent in my life. <laughs> are, how, are, how are you a person of faith, Jerry? He asked. I shared the gospel about the love of God, unconditional, the forgiveness of Christ, his willingness to die and raise again from the dead so that he might forgive my sins and reconcile me to God, give me the hope of eternal life. And he said, that's the most comforting thing I've ever heard in my life. I said, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, none, and prayed with me right there on that plane 15 minutes into the flight. The guy sitting on the aisle, he was a doctoral student at Trinity Seminary working on a doctorate in apologetics. He was used to building scaffolding. He wasn't used to obstetrics, seeing a person born again right in front of him. And he turned to Sean and loved on him and started the process of encouragement and the process of follow-up, which we were able to engage in in the weeks that followed. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? Now, some people say, I'm kind of extroverted. You might say, well, that's good for you extroverts. I'm pretty introverted. Can you pray? Can you pray? The pastor who was at the church when I first became a Christian, he said, Jerry, if God answered every prayer you prayed this last week, would there be anybody new in the kingdom? If I'm not praying for people to come to Christ, I may be missing opportunities that are popping all around me. He also said people who pray see lots of coincidences. So I used to hang out at this sports bar and grill. Four days a week, I'd have working lunches with people. The guy who ran the sports bar and grill, his name was Brad. And, and so I got to meet him the first day I was there. And I put him on my prayer list. I started praying for Brad. And every time I saw Brad, every day I made sure I did. I wouldn't leave the restaurant until I'd had some eye contact with him. I'd say, Brad, I really like that mahi-mahi sandwich. I hope you keep it on the menu. Hey, Brad, did you catch the game last night? Hey, Brad, how's business going? Three weeks, three weeks, I had small talk with him. After three weeks, I said this, Brad, I pray for you every day. I've never said that to a person had them say, well, would you stop it? <laughs> Most people are moved, somebody's praying for them. As aggressive as I got evangelistically with him was to tell him every three weeks I was praying for him. Three weeks passed, small talk. At the end of three weeks, I said, Brad, I pray for you every day. He said, you said that the other day. I didn't really trust you that you were. But if you're saying it again, you must really be praying for me. And he said, would you pray for my boys too? I wrote down the names of his boys. I wish you could have been there. The day, five months later, one of my kids came home from youth group at church and said, Dad, one of the guys brought Brad's son to youth group and he gave his heart to Jesus tonight. 
They believe God answers those prayers. Nine months, every three weeks, I just told him I was praying for him. Finally, he came up to me one day after lunch, and he said, Jerry, I want to talk to you right after lunch. He's a big guy, former NFL football player. I said, okay. I called my secretary, changed my appointments for the afternoon. We go down to a coffee shop. This guy pours out his soul to me. Why? We've never gotten any deeper than I pray for you, but I think he had crisis in his life, and he's looking for somebody who cared for him, and he knew that I, by faithful prayer, was caring for him. And after three hours weeping, telling me his story, I said, Brad, I think you need Jesus in your heart. I shared the gospel with him in about three to five minutes, which you're going to learn how to do when you go to that seminar next hour. He said, I think I need Jesus too, but I don't want to give him my life like it is right now. And so consequently, he said, I'm going to put it together first and give it to him. I said, it's not the way it usually works, but you can try it like that, and if it doesn't work, give me a call. I went back to every three weeks, tell him I was praying for him. Sure enough, I get a call at my office five months later. Jerry, my way's not working. Can I come to your office? I never saw anybody use more Kleenex than that guy did coming to Jesus. There's no, no verse in here that says you have to use Kleenex when you're coming to he gave his heart to Jesus. We started working on follow-up. You know why I'm telling you this? About six years ago, Brad dropped dead of a heart attack. And you want to know something? I'm going to introduce you to him one day because this stuff matters, and it matters forever. And we get to be a part of it, and it's really a lot of fun. I, I remember one time I was sitting at home. Fridays were my day off, and I said, Lord, there are people on your radar screen that aren't on mine. Open my eyes to see. And just then the garbage guy pulled up. And I go, wow, he comes to my house every Friday at 10 o'clock. I don't even know his name. I don't have to look, go looking for him. I started praying for the garbage guy. Next week, it was a hot part of the year, I had a glass of iced tea all ready for him. It was one of those trucks where they pull up and they come around from behind and throw their trash in a basket in the back. And he comes around from the back of the truck and I'm already there with the iced tea. I said, you look like you could use a break. You drink the tea and I'll throw the trash. And he's kind of like, okay, you know, what's this? Who's this guy? And takes a little sip just in case it's not poison, you know, like the beef eaters in England. And, and finally I say to him, what's your name? He said, Mike. He has a name. He has a name. I raced garbage guy and started praying for Mike. And every week I'm out there with something hot to drink in the cold part of the year, something cold to drink in the hot part of the year. One day he came by about noon. And I said, Mike, you're a little bit late today. He said, yeah, I had troubles on my route. I said, well, have you eaten lunch? He said, no. I said, well, come on in. I'll make you a sandwich. And he did. I didn't know those guys could do that. He came into my house. I made him a sandwich. He changed his whole route after that and came by at noon every week after that. <laughs> and it was over lunch, we started talking, and you know what happened with Mike? You know what his story was? He had a lady in his neighborhood who loved the kids in that neighborhood. And she had a backyard Bible club, and he remembered going to it when he was about eight or nine years old, and he remembered praying the prayer with that precious woman in that neighborhood. And his folks moved away two weeks later, and nobody ever followed him up. And you know what? He was my garbage guy, and I was in his world, and I got to speak explicitly into his life. We got him some follow-up stuff. He started going to church. It wasn't long after that, his wife and his two kids came to faith, and then he got tra transferred off my route, and I had a new garbage guy named Mick. <laughs> there was Steve, the mailman. He came every day to my house. 
I didn't have to go looking for him. What do you do with the mailman when he comes to your house? I always say, do you need to use the bathroom? I don't know what those guys do when they're on their route. <laughs> Jesus said a cup of cold water could do the trick. And you just love on them. And eventually, as I got to know Steve, I was able to share Jesus with Steve. And Steve came to faith. I said, Steve, you've got to come to church with me. He says, you know what, Jerry, I'm divorced. I've got the kids on the weekend. I think it would be difficult. I said, my church has great stuff for kids. Your kids will love it. Why don't you come to church and come to lunch afterwards? So we had him over for lunch, and I wish you could have been there when I got on my knees next to those two boys and led those two boys to Christ so that they had the same faith as their father. There are people out there who want to know. Uh, last week I was in England, and I went to C.S. Lewis's church in Headington Quarry. I go in the church. Church was empty, but there was this couple sitting there. By the way, churches are interesting, aren't they? If your pastors gave you seating assignments, you'd all rebel. But look at you. You sit in the same place every Sunday anyway. <laughs> you'd all rebel. But no, that means you're a pastor of your pew. And if somebody comes to your church and they're sitting in your area, you need to make a beeline for them and say, welcome here. Are you new? And maybe they'll say, well, I've been going here 35 years. And you go, oh, okay, well, it's about time I got to know you. Most of the time, you'll know. Maybe they're new in the area and they're looking for a church and they're a believer. Maybe they're new and they've never been to church. I remember meeting a guy one time. I said, I, I don't recognize you. And he said, yeah, I've never been here before. I said, what brings you? He said, my girlfriend broke up with me last week and I'm pretty beat up. And I had a chance to lead that guy to church. He comes to, these people come to church every Sunday and they leave every Sunday and sometimes they're never talked to. You can just say, do you, do you understand what the message was about? Do you understand the central message of the Bible? And you share it with them. So anyway, I walk into C.S. Lewis's church, and here are these two, two young people, probably 18, 19 years old, sitting in this pew, reading this card about this, thing, this window, a Narnian window that's in that church. And I said, oh, are you, are you guys C.S. Lewis fans? It's a fair question to ask. They're reading about the window. They said, No. I said, are you from Headington? They said, said, yeah, yeah, we're from here. Oh, do you go to this church? No, we don't. Are, are, are you Christians? And Jack, the young man, said, I, I don't really know what that means. Could you tell me? And I shared with Jack and Alice, and they both trusted Christ just last week. These people are in our world, and they want to hear and Jesus wants us to tell. And he says, you'll keep seeing Jesus show up in your life, and you'll have a more full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. And guess what? Sometimes it doesn't go well at all. If you're afraid of playing baseball because you don't want to strike out, don't play baseball. But if you don't play baseball, you'll never know the joy of hitting a home run. You also don't know where it's going. We get our engineering from on high. You feel the prompt to share with somebody, you share with them. You may be number five of their coming to Christ, and it might be 12 people before they come to Christ, and you're an essential part of that process. Be bold. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Why do I tell you this? Because I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. As the worship band comes up, let me close our time in prayer. Father, we've gathered here this day 
And it's a significant day because you brought us here and you have something for us. You want to use us and deploy us into the world that you love so deeply, that you love so much you sent your son to die and prove his love for us that we might know you through his death and resurrection. Help us to have our eyes open through all the awkwardness and to discover in the process how you want to create skill in us that we might become proficient and pointing people to your son, whom we love so deeply, and in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you. Let's stand if we are able, and let's continue our worship this morning. benediction over you as you go. May you be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, I invite you back this Wednesday and Thursday night at 6.45 to listen to to Dr. Jerry Root as we explore reflections on C.S. Lewis 60 years later. Our prayer team will be up front. We would love to pray over you. You guys have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Love you. Love being with you.